Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. For 50% off of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Also, people, this week, The Imposter is back with season two. Season two, Aaliyah Learns Comedy. She's starting at the bottom, she's taking classes, she is getting up on stage, and she is seeing if she has what it takes. And along the way, she is going to interview comedians and talk about comedy. This is going to be an amazing and funny season of The Imposter. If you are not subscribed to that show, go subscribe to that show. When we talk about stuff that Canada does around the world, I feel like Canadians are always bringing up the stuff we didn't do. We didn't go to Vietnam. We didn't go to Iraq. The stuff that we did do, we followed the U.S. into Korea, into Afghanistan, into the first Gulf War. That stuff doesn't come up quite as much. When the conservative government struck a massive arms deal to make and sell war machines to Saudi Arabia, a country with one of the worst human rights records in the world... This was sold to the public 
as a matter of simple realism. Hey, if we didn't sell the House of Saud these LAVs, these machine gun-wielding, armored killing machines, then, hey, somebody else would. It's about jobs, people. And the public seemed okay with it. Later, when Justin Trudeau was campaigning and he was questioned about this arms deal, he brushed the whole thing aside. He said it was just a bunch of Jeeps. And the public seemed okay with that. When his government was caught totally misrepresenting itself, Stéphane Dion, who was the Minister of Foreign Affairs at the time, claiming that it was a done deal, that he had no choice but to rubber stamp this arms deal with Saudi Arabia, when in fact it was later revealed that he actively decided to sign off on a remaining 70% of the transaction, the public seemed okay with it. When it was revealed that the Saudis were using very similar weapons to violently intervene in Yemen's bloody civil war, the Trudeau government said, well, you know, we can't be sure that they're using our weapons to do that, but we'll look into it. And the public seemed okay with it. Well, just this past summer, the videos surfaced. Teradyne Gurkha RPVs, military vehicles, armored weapons, manufactured just a few clicks north of where I sit right now in Newmarket, Ontario, deployed by Saudi Arabia to crush their own citizens. There were casualties, whole neighborhoods leveled with these Canadian-made weapons. That news hit just weeks ago, really, and the public seemed, well, the public didn't even seem to notice. The story reported by Stephen Chase in the Globe and Mail, this expose of his was a late summer headline overshadowed by hurricanes, by North Korea, and by Trump, and by Trump, and by Trump. But what we are doing with Saudi Arabia is quite likely against international law. And reporter Stephen Chase, by the way, Stephen Chase is pretty much the only Canadian reporter who's been covering this stuff. He will join me in a moment to talk about it. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Sarah Polkinghome, Devin Wiles, Lee Fay, Damian Dweck, Meredith Lowe, Sandra Hannebaum, Aaron Bradford, and Dana Ashcroft. Dana, why did you decide to be awesome? Because before Canada Land, I didn't really understand the how, the what, and the why behind Canadian reporting and the media. Now I have a tool that can help me understand that and be more critical of the media in a constructive fashion. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. 
And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode of Canada Land is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service that is dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient Our listeners are trying this out. Jen tweeted a picture of uh, some chicken yakitori that she made for herself and for her kids. You know, I like HelloFresh because chicken yakitori is not something that I would cook for my family unless somebody sent me the ingredients, perfectly measured out, fresh locally sourced ingredients and instructions on how to cook chicken yakitori in 30 minutes or less. I might have made a stir fry. I have some other noodle things that I do. I don't know how to make yakitori, but with HelloFresh, you are always being given exactly what you need to expand your repertoire, to keep cooking fun, to keep it exploratory, but also to cook things that have been tested again and again in HelloFresh's test kitchen. I saw this. They make sure the recipes work and they make sure that the recipes are yummy. So try this out. They send everything to you in a special insulated box for free. The shipping is free delivered to your doorstep. The cold stuff is cold. The meat is vacuum packed and you're just good to go. You don't have to stress about meal planning. You don't have to go stand in line at the supermarket. You don't have to buy more product than you need. You don't have to cook and then realize that you don't have that one spice that actually makes the recipe work. HelloFresh is so convinced that you're going to like what they do that they're giving you 50% off of your first box. They just want you to try it out. So visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the cloud accounting solution. It is like the accounting department for your freelance practice or small business. I speak to freelancers. I still get invoices that are made with Microsoft Word or Excel or other free options out there. And I think that this is coming from people who say, you know what, I'm a freelancer. It's a struggle to be a freelancer. I don't need to spend money on something that I can do a version of for free. I understand that mentality. I used to have that mentality myself, but if you really think about freelancing or or running a small business, getting paid is a big part of your job, right? Every job is like three jobs, finding work, doing the work, and then getting paid for the work. So yes, if you just think about it as like, what's the cheapest way to make an invoice, it's something you could do for free. But if you think about it as like, this is the third part, this is like a whole endeavor. You spend so much time every week calling up people who owe you money, trying to figure out a way to not jeopardize the relationship, to have that gentle, passive-aggressive email reminding somebody that they're late. That is a massive distraction from the parts of your job that you want to be doing, and you don't have to spend so much time doing it, and it doesn't have to be so tortured. FreshBooks is worth it for a lot of reasons, but I think it's worth it for that reason alone. It lets you do about 100 other things. Let's just focus on this one. It gets you paid quicker, so try it out. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. You can try it out. You don't need a credit card. 30-day free trial. When you do decide to use FreshBooks, use the offer code CanadaLand. Thanks, FreshBooks. So are Canadian weapons being used against civilians in Saudi Arabia? It it seems so. Uh, Back in July, uh, we got reports uh, through social media. There was video clips. There was photos 
showing uh, Canadian-made armoured vehicles taking part in an attack in uh, eastern province, Saudi Arabia. There was a, a conflict, an internal conflict between the Saudi government and people, civilians in eastern province in an area uh, that's broadly known as Al-Khatif, more specifically in, in a region of that area called Awamiya, and even more specifically in a neighborhood called Al-Mazara. And in Al-Mazara, uh, there were fights taking place between the local population and the Saudi government, which was spotted using uh, at least one kind of Canadian-made armored vehicle, tactical vehicles made by Teradyne, uh, which is a company in Newmarket, Ontario, in northern Toronto. And later, there was even some clips showing a vehicle Canadians are more familiar with, the light armored vehicles made by General Dynamics of London, Ontario. So these vehicles were taking place in this conflict, in this assault. There were videos of um, firefights, attacks, and uh, the Saudis didn't deny it. In fact, they defended it. What do they say? We put in questions to the Saudi embassy. We explained what we were talking about. They knew what we were talking about because they asked for the questions. And we said, look, uh, there are Canadian-made vehicles being used. We've got these pictures. We've got these videos. Uh, and an attack on uh, a conflict with civilians, with the local population. We said, have you checked with the Canadian government about this? And instead of denying it or rejecting things out of hand, they said, uh, well, you know, we're fighting terrorists. And this is no different from when the RCMP took down the shooter on Parliament Hill back in October 2014. So uh, they were very clear that this is uh, th th this is something they, they thought was necessary and that they thought was uh, fully defensible. There has been a lot of concerns raised about this conflict, even by the Canadian government, uh, before we reported that there were Canadian-made vehicles seen uh, taking place in this. The Canadian government had actually put out an extraordinary uh, warning to, South to uh, Saudi Arabia saying, we're very concerned about the violence here, and basically warning them to rein it in. Stephen, I'm confused here because the Canadian government's response, I mean, it's kind of changed since Trudeau won. The first response was, well, you know, they're just Jeeps. And then it was, well, it's a done deal. The Conservatives are the ones who, who set up this deal. We can't change it. And then, and then you found out, no, that's not true. Actually, Stefan Dion, he actually had the authority to stop like 70% of the transaction and he didn't use it. And that was not really information that was forthcoming from the government. Then the government, their position was, well, we're concerned, but we, and we see these videos, the old videos showed similar vehicles, I think in Yemen that were being used in ways that would have been problematic, but they said, we don't know that our weapons are being used against civilians. So in, in, until you can show that, we're just concerned and we'll keep selling them this stuff. Now you got videos of Canadian weaponry, Canadian vehicles, armored vehicles, being used against Saudi Arabia's own citizens, the Saudis are saying, yeah, and so what? And the Canadian response is, we're very concerned we're going to look into this? Yes, the Canadian government uh, initially took a different tack from uh, what maybe might have taken place under former Foreign Affairs Minister Stéphane Dion. Christian Freeland uh, said that she was deeply concerned about what she was seeing, and she vowed that she would launch a review and investigation into what is happening. That was in late July. And, you know, months have elapsed. We have heard nothing since.
What's there to review? If, if there's videos of this happening and the Saudis say, yeah, we're doing this and we feel justified in doing so, then it, it feels pretty well established that they're like, I mean, they're killing people. I don't know if the specific, is that where we're at now? Does it have to be the specific Canadian vehicle is killing a specific? So, I mean, they're being used in these military actions and these videos. I mean, it looks like it's a war zone. It looks like it's from Syria or something. It looks like total devastation. They're doing that with our, with our gear. Yeah, you raise a really important question, which is, what's the threshold? What's the criteria? The fact is, is that going back for decades, our export control rules say that the onus is actually on the government to demonstrate that there's no reasonable risk of the weapons we sell countries being used against the local population. So the onus is actually on the government to demonstrate there's no reasonable risk. That bar that criteria really hasn't uh, been acknowledged by the government. Uh, for instance, when they justified, um, they, they laid out a rationale for the Liberal government approving the shipment of uh, General Dynamics combat vehicles to the Saudis back in, uh, in 2016. They said, we've seen no evidence that these have been used against civilians. But that's kind of moving away from the rules that have been established for decades under the Canadian government's own arms export rules, where it says the real test is, can the government of Canada demonstrate there's no reasonable risk that these weapons might be used against the local population, not whether or not they found a smoking gun. Yeah, but you literally found a smoking gun. Like, that's interesting, and I think you can hold the government responsible for ignoring that that was the previous standard and moving it to this new standard of like, well, show me that they're actually doing this. But we're there now, right? Like, you actually, <laughs> the guns, the smoke is coming out of the guns. It's happened. Yeah, that's the concern. See, I want to just give you a bit more background about what's been taking place in, in Eastern Province, in the region known as Almiya, in the neighborhood known as Al-Mazara. Um, this area, largely known as Al-Khatif, is where the majority of uh, Shia Muslims live in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is mostly Sunni. It's never been counted officially, but there's only about 10 to 15 percent of the population of the entire country that's, that's Shia Muslim, and they live in Eastern Province. And they are... Uh, a disenfranchised class. They don't have the same opportunities for advancement. They're basically second-class citizens, and they've been in conflict with the government, particularly since Arab Spring. And so this area, this particular neighborhood of Al-Mazara, the government wanted to destroy it because it was uh, an ancient village with narrow streets where their armored vehicles couldn't get through it. And in fact, armored vehicles are a daily feature of life here in the sense that they use them as checkpoints for people going into this area. So they want to be able to run these vehicles everywhere through the streets and not have these narrow winding passageways to block them. So they're getting rid of a neighborhood and they're just raising it to the ground. The UN human rights monitors have raised concerns about this. And then the conflict sort of erupts in, in January between people, um, militant members of the local population who don't like this, and the government, and it really explodes in the summer. So yes, back in uh, 2016, the Globe and Mail showed videos that we obtained from activists, local activists, showing the Saudi Arabian government using combat vehicles against their own population in the very same area, in Awamiya, in Al-Khatif. And now, in 2017, in July, we have found Canadian armed vehicles being used in these conflicts, in the conflicts which both sides acknowledge have killed people. So yes, we, we have a situation that we, that the sort of critics of arms exports had warned about for a long time, and yet the government is remarkably, um, I guess, plodding in terms of its 
response. It's been, as, as I said, weeks and weeks and weeks, and the government just says we're still looking into it. And I guess the concern that's being raised by human rights groups is, do we have a captive regulator in Ottawa? In the federal government, the very same department that's responsible for promoting trade and economic activity abroad, that's the Department of Global Affairs, within that department is also the regulator that's supposed to regulate arms exports. It's called the Export Control Division. So the very same department that has a mandate to do one thing is also supposed to also, you know, essentially police itself. And the concern is, is we have a captive regulator in that department. This is what human rights groups are voicing, that perhaps uh, there's something wrong with the, with the regulation. You're saying that the same department that is responsible for, like, making money uh, with these international deals is also responsible for making sure that we're not trampling, that we're not providing weapons to nations that would use them to trample human rights. Yes, broadly speaking, I mean, the Global, Department of Global Affairs has two branches in it. It has foreign affairs and it has international trade, but they all fall under the same umbrella. And yes, their job is to cut economic deals and, and expand economic activity, but also to um, police and monitor exports. Do you think that it's a factor that, I don't know, like I'm trying to find a polite way to say this. You say the story came out in July, it developed throughout August. I know that Christia Freeland responded to it. It's not like it didn't get any play. I kind of got the sense that people didn't care, that it was not the story that it might have been, especially since, again, the smoking gun to this to this story that had been brewing for years that all balanced on whether or not these weapons were being used, Canadian weapons against Saudi civilians. And here's like a video, a series of videos proving that it was. I didn't sense the impact that, that I, I thought might you might have. Polls show that Canadians consistently show that Canadians don't like this. We did a, a Nanos poll in the weeks that followed, and it showed that two-thirds of Canadians, basically 64%, in light of these revelations, do not want us selling these vehicles. On the other side, there was actually only 14% who wanted them sold, and another dozen-odd percent who actually weren't sure and somewhat supported the sale. But you've got you know, almost two-thirds of Canadians against it. So there's certainly a public will to stop these. September's a busy month. You've got uh, Parliament returning. You've got um, you know a lot of things taking place around the world, especially the United States, that's often dominating the headlines. I don't think the issue's going away. I think that a lot of other things are sort of cramming the agenda right now. And I think it also requires the media to step up and hold the government to account, which is what we do. Yeah. The problem with polls is is that they can only count how people feel about subjects that the poll introduces to the person. They don't really measure what people cared about before the poll, you know, brought it up. The other thing about the polling is that there was polling the first time around before it was as, as solid a story. The first time around when there was suspicion that these weapons were being used in ways that actually violate, you know, international law and human rights. But when it was just a suspicion, 70 to 80 percent. Last time we spoke, you told me that 70 to 80 percent of Canadians polled opposed the deal. Then we find out that our weapons are being used to crush Saudi citizens and 64, actually less Canadians, 64 percent say they oppose the deal. Uh, I don't know what to make of that. Well, the first poll was actually, I think, a, a broad a broad indicator of, of people, whether people thought we should sacrifice human rights for arms sales. So it was a bit of a broader question. In this case, um, I would argue that uh, that's uh, that consistently, our pollster says consistently in the same area. So I don't think that's the issue. I think one of the problems is it was the, the Harper government which originally signed and engaged the contract. And so I wouldn't say that the Conservative caucus is pursuing this issue with vigor in the way that they might pursue another issue. Yeah. One of the things I hear when I they, they discuss 
the issue is, you know, we don't want to be raising questions about a deal that we help put together. So you got you got a lack of question period accountability and 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 the kind of questions that you might see if if the roles were reversed because the conservatives sort of own this deal in a certain way. And you also mentioned that the press is not holding the government's feet to the fire as they might. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Do you feel like, you know, your work along with Robert Fife and some other colleagues, like, uh, are you kind of alone in pushing this? I wouldn't say alone. I think that Radio Canada International, RCI, has also been uh, stepped up, and we saw CBC at at times engaged in the issue. I have to say, and it's it's not a great excuse, but it has been a rather busy uh, last two months between North Korea (laughs) and hurricanes and so on. And the media in Ottawa is not as strong and robust as it once was. Uh, you know, in, entire companies have been emptied out here, so you don't have the same number of uh, reporters in Ottawa uh, focusing on the, the files as you did maybe 10 years ago. So there's a bit uh, thinner ranks in the press gallery, and it's been a busy couple of months. But Radio Canada did step up to the plate, and they did. A, I thought they did a good job. The question, I guess, now is, uh, where's the government's response? How come it's taking so long? And we're not getting any answers on that. You bring up Radio Canada. They, they, they have been following this. In fact, when I went to actually look for the videos, I couldn't find them. On, and maybe I missed them somewhere, but I looked pretty thoroughly. I couldn't find them in your reporting, the videos that show the Canadian uh, arms and, and weapons and vehicles being used. But there were like, I don't know, six to eight videos that Radio Canada uh, posted. Did, did you guys decide not to run those for some reason? No, I actually can't explain the web formatting and what happened, but no, there was no decision whatsoever. I think um, we ran pictures and stills, and I guess it's a matter of uh, a bit more searching required to find them. I see. Your work is interesting to me when you see these videos. How do you confirm their accuracy? There's two things you have to establish. One is... um, are these, in fact, the models that were, were Canadian-made? I took the videos. We went to Human Rights Watch. They have an arms expert who, who, whose job it is to recognize um, models, and they confirmed that they were Teradyne vehicles. I also went to a retired Canadian uh, general who asked to remain anonymous uh, because he didn't want to be talking on the file, who also confirmed they were, in fact, those vehicles. I went to one of Teradyne's competitors, and they also confirmed they were those vehicles. And I also went to um, Project Plowshares, which monitors arms exports, and they had confirmed that those are, in fact, those vehicles. So we had pretty much confirmed the Teradyne vehicles. They had very distinctive markings, especially around the wheel rims. We knew already that there had been Teradyne armored vehicles sold over the last few years. Uh, most of the coverage, of course, of armored vehicles being sold to Saudi Arabia has been about the General Dynamics light armored vehicles. Uh, but Teradyne is another company, and we'd, we'd actually documented their trade. So we were fairly familiar with that. And then the question was, were these vehicles, in fact, shot in the locations in which they are allegedly being shot in? And so what I did was I found local activists who went to the same spots and sent me pictures of them. Then we, of course, asked the Saudi embassy, um, who, of course, d- didn't deny it at all, and in fact, defended it. So that helped uh, cement things and put things together. Yeah. Their response, I guess, kind of puts it to rest. If any of this is inaccurate, they have every reason to tell you so. Yeah. I think that to a certain extent, Justin Trudeau took ownership of this issue, and maybe he did so in error when he kind of dismissed this whole thing as, uh, you know, some Jeeps that we sold them. The question can then be put to him when you can show evidence of what these so-called Jeeps are up to. Has that question been put to him, and has his position on it changed? Is he still as dismissive about this issue? 
his response is, and they are standing behind the same response that we are investigating. And yesterday or the day before, he claimed that whatever you say about us, we're more concerned about the file than the conservatives ever were. That was the sort of retort he got off in question period. So that's the latest. Uh-huh. That's the latest angle of responses. We're we're better than the Tories were on this. The last time you and I spoke, Stephen, what surprised me most about this is that it feels like this brings up kind of like almost like a classic ethical dilemma where you do have people saying, come on, grow up. This is the real world. If we didn't sell them these weapons, somebody else did. We can't be held responsible for everything that happens with this. And it creates thousands of jobs. And then, you know, you can imagine there's another side saying, well, uh, actually, that's not true. We have to take some level of responsibility. And that is a debate that I haven't actually heard play out uh, last time we spoke, be it in the media or elsewhere. It's not. It didn't feel like we were taking responsibility for what our country was doing and, and, and as citizens saying, well, do we want this to happen in, in our name? Is this the way we should be behaving? Has that changed? Do you feel like that's played out in any way? Like if it is, it's not in any way that I've sensed. No, I don't have a sense that that debate's played out. I think the conservatives, when they were in power, were more likely to speak in those sort of real politic terms. The liberals, uh, I think the liberals, partly because they have a, a left flank that is more concerned about this, they don't speak in those kind of terms. They don't try to appeal to some kind of real politic uh, argument that, you know, uh, I think Mr. Dion did a bit at the beginning. He said, you know, everyone sells these things. Um, but the, the fact is, is that Canada makes claims about its arms control regime. The, the claims the Canadian government makes about its arms control regime is that it's among the best in the world. However, you currently have in Sweden a government moving to actually introduce democracy and human rights as as criteria for arms sales. So there are certainly far more robust regimes. You have Germany just announcing the other day it's not going to sell arms to Turkey anymore. Yeah. So you have very interesting developments in Europe that still need to be to play out to see how how in fact how enduring they are. That would suggest that we do not have, uh, we can't sort of claim that that mantle as one of the best arms regimes in the world. If the government wants to make that argument, they should perhaps, you know, strip away some of the the guidelines and the the, the language, their their verbiage that they attach to their descriptions of their arms control regime, and that might make it less of a, a glaring discrepancy. I think it's a challenge for the government because it certainly is off-brand. It's off-brand Canada selling arms to Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, and brand Canada has never been more linked with a governing administration than it is right now. You know, if the public's not looking to talk about this, they have every reason to ignore it. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think that um, this is certainly not a conversation they want to start, and they try to uh, wrap up the conversation as quickly as possible. So it doesn't really fit with the sort of... Um, you know, motto Canada's back. It doesn't really fit with the sort of feminist feminist foreign policy that they espouse. Aside from countries claiming to be the most virtuous and the most progressive in this, on this particular issue of arms sales, apart from uh, an interesting academic philosophical argument about whether a country should be doing this or not, there just is like the rules, like there's just international law and there are international agreements that we've signed on to. Is there any ambiguity there? Like what you've reported that's not kosher, right? Like if that's true, the rules state we can't do this anymore. Is there wiggle room in that? I'm not a lawyer, and I think that the government has written its its legislation and its regulations over the years to give it ample wiggle room. 
You saw that on display when Daniel Turp, the uh, Montreal professor, took Mr. Dion to court to try to stop the Saudi arms deal. And the response from government lawyers was, we have untrammeled discretion and authority uh, to do whatever we want with arms shipments. In fact, we can even ship arms to a country if we know that there are uh, human rights abuses taking place, provided we think there's other rationale for doing so. The fact is, however, the language of the arms export control regime says a government um, that has a poor, a country that has a poor human rights record, you should not be shipping arms to those countries unless you can demonstrate there's no reasonable risk these would be used against civilians there. And I would argue that what we saw this past summer, and of course in previous iterations using other countries' vehicles, I would argue that in fact that that's been violated. That in fact there is now a record of a demonstrable risk that these vehicles might be used against civilians. And the, I guess the question that human rights advocates are, are raising is, if there is a demonstrable risk, why is the government doing more research? Why is the government still investigating this? So I guess the question that human rights activists and weapons control advocates are asking is, what more do you need? And the government hasn't responded, and I guess we'll be looking forward to a, some kind of robust response this fall. Well, the rules exist, and then they, they only get used if somebody actually, you know, sues, or, and Daniel Turp has threatened to do so. The last time he did so, the court ruled that, uh, you know, the court's role is not to pass moral judgment, but just to rule on the legality, and, and they said that there was no evidence at the time that Canadian military equipment had been used to commit the alleged human rights violations. The evidence has now changed. A similar legal action would very likely have a different outcome, and Turp has threatened to, to launch one. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen there? He has an appeal underway. I guess the question is whether he adds this to his appeal. I haven't been in touch with him recently, but it was my understanding that they were going to proceed to add this to their appeal. The interesting thing about Daniel Turp's legal challenge of the Canadian government's decision to ship and to sell armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia is it forced the government to make public the memos and the rationales for that sale. There is no way that journalists would have gotten those documents otherwise. So that was a tremendous public service that he accomplished there. And it does make you wonder if you know, taking the government to court is actually the best way to pry documents out of them, given that the access to information system, which is the system that journalists have been trying to use for years, is so broken and shoddy. When a, a law professor from Montreal can force the government to disclose information and details about its decisions that we could not have obtained any other way. Stephen, thank you very much for talking with me again. You're welcome. That's your Canada Land. You can email me about it. I read everything you send me. I respond when I can. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Liking us on Facebook is a way to get our news in your feed, which is where most people get their news. So like us on Facebook or go to our website, canadalandshow.com, read our stories there. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Don't forget to subscribe to The Imposter. It is back for season two this week. Our upcoming live show will close the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. It is a conversation on stage between me and Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star, who is reporting Trump like no other. It's going to be a great talk. Google Hot Docs Podcast Festival, Canada Land. Get your tickets now. They are selling very quickly. Syndication of this show to community and campus radio is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. This show is produced by Kevin Sexton. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. 
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.